Okay, after all that excitement of hearing testimony and how can people come together, let's have one more little prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this privilege to freely read these precious words of your risen Lord Jesus. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together around God's Word, and we have a privilege of doing that this morning again. Um, you'll, have, you'll notice in your leaflets there's a handout, uh, and in that handout you'll see a little map. Uh, so you can see where the churches, the churches are in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. Have a look at that. And also on the inside, there's a table. And it'd be good for you to fill out uh, the words uh, for the suffering church, which I'll help you with the first one. It's Smyrna. OK? So uh, good to fill that out. And we'll progress that each Sunday as we, we go through these, uh, uh, these little chapters or verses. I wonder if you've ever thought about the question, what does Jesus... Or how does Jesus see his church? What does he think of it? How does the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified ascended Lord, view his church on earth? As we saw two weeks ago, this is not the suffering Jesus of the Gospels. This is the glorified Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who was there before it all began and the one who will be there when it's all finished. This is the one who was and is to come, the Almighty, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, the one who is in charge of everything. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? No, this is the glorious, majestic Son of Man, ruler of the universe, judge of all the earth, the one who is to be worshipped, the one who, to whom we all belong the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And this is the one we meet and hear from when we come to church on Sundays. It's important how we view Jesus, but it's even more important how he views us. How does he see his church? And that's what these seven letters to the churches are about, aren't they? It's how Jesus sees his church. And the thing is, what he sees and what he says matters. You know, we can, we can look at the, uh, the census that's been done just last year of the church and find out what society thinks of the church and we can do the uh, natural church life survey perhaps and have a look at what 
uh, what the, sociologically the church is about, but far more important is what Jesus sees and what Jesus says. Who cares what the world thinks about the church? It's what he sees and what he says that matters. It's quite often different to what we see or say about the church, isn't it? So what is Jesus really concerned about? Now, remember back in chapter 1, the church is described as a lampstand and the risen, ascended, glorious Christ walks among the lampstands. He's with his church. It's his church and he leads the church. What's his great concern for the church? Well, it's simply this, that the lights don't go out. Is the light still burning? You see, Jesus' vision for his church is that we be a city on a hill that cannot be hid. We're to be a light shining in a dark place, aren't we? We're to be the light of the world, a light to the nations. And it's smouldering in Ephesus, isn't it, as we saw last week? It's flickering in Thyatira. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But notice it's burning brightly in Smyrna. Jesus has nothing bad to say about the church in Smyrna. He only has words of encouragement, really, for these people who are suffering persecution. See, it's not persecution that puts the lights out, is it? It's complacency, it's self-sufficiency. It's proud, dead orthodoxy that puts the lights out. And the point is, if if you're suffering for Jesus, if you stand for him and share in his sufferings because of it, you'll get nothing but sympathy and praise from him. Now, the church in Smyrna was not an outwardly impressive group at all. In fact, they were poor, hated and harassed. The ancient city of Smyrna was one of the most beautiful cities in the region and a major trading centre with a beautiful harbour and port. Today, the city is called Izmir and it's the third largest city in Turkey. But back then it was very much a Roman city and a key centre for the religious cults, including the cult of Caesar worship. In fact, Smyrna was chosen by the Roman Senate at the time out of 11 bidding cities to build a temple for the Emperor Tiberius. They were proud of their loyalty to Rome. And so this is where the church was. It was probably planted around 50 to 60 AD by the Apostle uh, by not by Paul, but by the people that he was lecturing in the Hall of Tyrannus. You remember he was in Ephesus, he stayed there for a couple of years and lectured there and and people went out, Uh, church planters went out and the church (coughs) of Smyrna was planted at that time. And now the Apostle John, 20 to 30 years later, is given a message from the Lord to this group of poor and harassed Christians living in a culture that was quite hostile to the gospel. So, what has he got to say? Let's have a look at this, uh, the words of Jesus to this suffering church. First, we're reminded here, aren't we, that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, knows our struggles. That's a really important thing, is that he knows our struggles. In Revelation 1, verse 14, we read about the Lord Jesus, that his eyes are like blazing fire. What, what can't he see? Is there anything that he doesn't see? Nothing is hidden from him. He knows it all, including our struggles. He knows what you're going through. Look at verse 9. He says to his church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows where they are. 
and he knows what they're going through. The word affliction is a really strong word here, and it has the idea of continual sort of pressure, a bit like uh, grinding of millstones used to grind wheat. Jesus says, I know you're going through the mill. I know the continual pressure that you're under. The text tells us they were suffering persecution for being Christians in two ways. They were poor. I know your poverty, says Jesus. Many of the early Christians were poor. Many were slaves or orphans or widows that were drawn by the love of God, shown through the love of the community. It was hard for Christians to find work in that time. Some of, it, some of, some of their businesses and shops were sort of boycotted by the Jews and the Romans. There was poverty in the church community. Now, that, that is not something that we generally face. Not many Christians in Australia are poor. In fact, quite the obvious opposite and yet being a christian will nowadays cost you putting the gospel first will cost you being on the outer at work losing friends perhaps promotion family possibly even your job but we're not likely to face the sort of poverty faced by the christians in smyrna yet our culture is turning against christianity isn't it are you ready for that are you ready for that? Are you ready to lose friends and work, perhaps even material wealth? Christians in Afghanistan and India and many other places of the world certainly suffer poverty for their faith. And the point is this, Jesus says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know all about your struggles. I know you're suffering because of your faith. They were poor and they were also slandered, verse 9. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews. Now, there was a powerful Jewish minority that lived in the city. Many of them were Roman citizens and they had a unique arrangement with Roman authorities. All the Roman subjects had to burn incense to the Emperor Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. But the Jews had this special arrangements where they could sacrifice or offer sacrifices to the Emperor as the ruler but did not have to offer them to him as a god. This allowed the Jews and the Romans to sort of coexist. And early on, the Romans considered Christianity to be a sect of, uh, uh, of Judaism, and they were sort of safe in that, in that arrangement. But when Nero came to power in 60 AD, all this changed, and he declared Christianity a new illegal religion and started persecuting Christians. And this suited the Jews, and they became sort of complicit with the Romans in this persecution. All they had to do was remind the police that you know, these Jews didn't worship Caesar, the emperor, and the Romans would come and take them away and harass them and make life hard for them. And Jesus says of these Jews, they're not true Jews. They're doing Satan's work, much like the Pharisees did in hounding Jesus to the cross. See, when Jesus says, I know, it's not just that he just, he sees it all, but it's also the fact that he's actually been through it all himself. He's saying, I know what it is to be hated. I know what it is to be relentlessly pursued. I know what it is to be ridiculed and abused. I know what it is to be stripped of everything and to be nailed to a cross. So when we're tempted to despair or self-pity, at the little things that we suffer for the gospel. Remember Jesus. Remember he knows. 
He's gone through it all. And he knows what you're going through. He sees your fear. He sees your struggle. He knows your heart and desire to stand firm and not to cave. See, if your husband or wife listens to your problems, and doesn't try to fix them, but just listens, that helps. If your therapist listens, that's good. If a friend listens patiently, you say, that's, that's very nice. But if the Lord Jesus knows, there's hope, isn't there? He was the, he who was long before your hardships and who will reign in them long afterwards knows your struggles. He who died knows you will die. He who lives again knows you will, you will live again through faith in him. He's not just a patient ear or a reflective listener. He's the first and the last and he knows. Notice he also sees the inward reality. We are rich, he says. Four little words, yet you are rich, verse 9. He sees your spirit in the face of that suffering. And the Christians in Smyrna were gold to Jesus. In his eyes, they were rich in faith and in, in their internal inheritance. As James puts it in James chapter 2, verse 5, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. And that reminds us to check ourselves and ask, what sort of wealth am I chasing? What am I living for? And I think this is a real challenge for us who live in such a wealthy culture here in Australia. Put it another way, would you still be a Christian if you were persecuted by the state here? Like the Christians are in Afghanistan or Iran or China or Korea, North Korea. Would you still be a Christian if you lost your job or your place at uni? Would you still follow Christ if it was not respectable at all to do so? We wouldn't have much in the bank of heaven if we deny him before our unbelieving friends, would we? Or behave just like them when we know the Lord disapproves. We wouldn't much ha have much in the bank of heaven, would we? The Bible tells us that we experience true spiritual riches in the most adverse circumstances. You know what Apostle Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm poor, then I'm rich. Notice there's no thought here of relieving the Christians at Smyrna of their troubles or removing their afflictions from them. It's all about Christ being with them in the midst of their suffering so that they might persevere. That's the first thing. The Lord Jesus knows our struggles. And then secondly, we're reminded that the Lord Jesus calls us to stand firm, to persevere. You know, William Carey, a famous missionary, called the father of modern missions, was born into a poor family. He failed as an apprentice uh, shoemaker. He tried running a school without success. He attempted to pastor a small church but bored people with his tedious sermons. Then he formed a missionary society with himself as the first candidate. And he actually translated the whole Bible into six languages and parts of it into 29 other languages. At one time, he lost 10 years of translation work in a fire. What did he do? 
he simply started again. And he called himself God's plotter. That's a great description, isn't it? God's plotter. I can plot, he said. That's my genius. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. You know, these days in the church scene, we look for performers, not plotters, don't we? We look for stars or superstars. But Jesus commends plotters, like the Christians at Smyrna. The Duke of Wellington once said to, of his soldiers, my men are not braver than the enemies. They're just brave for five minutes longer. That's perseverance, isn't it? That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what impresses him when he looks at his church. Would we be, what would he say of us here at Trinity Church, Mount Barker? We perseverers? Notice that Jesus said, what Jesus says to encourage his church to stand firm, to persevere. He says, firstly, don't be afraid. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and, will, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. What a word from Jesus to his suffering church. Jesus tells his church their suffering is about to intensify. The devil will test you in prison. It'll be for 10 days, again, a symbolic number. In other words, it'll be for a relatively short time, uh, restricted time. Now, you might be thinking, well, how, how can the devil do that? He's not in control, is he? Is he? Surely Jesus is in, is in control. Yes, he is, but he allows the devil, doesn't he, to sift and test the faith of his people? Remember Jesus talking to Peter, said once, Simon, Satan has asked to have you so that he might sift you like wheat. That's a frightening thing to be told, isn't it? Terrible experience to go through. But we can actually say the same, can't we? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what the future will hold, what trials, what hardships what struggles God will allow into our lives. We don't know that. Why does he allow trouble to come into our lives? Well, to strengthen our faith, to refine us, to build up his people. That's why he says, don't be afraid, because faith banishes fear. Don't be afraid. Put on faith. Satan has asked to have you so that he might sift you. And remember what Jesus says to Peter. But I have prayed for you. Isn't that a comfort? What an encouragement that is to stand firm. Jesus knows the pressure you're under, being the only Christian at work and being ridiculed for it, or being the only Christian in your family and you're thinking, Am I, <laughs> I can't be right and everybody else is wrong, can I? He understands what it's like. It is hard. To want to throw it all in. He knows he's been there, hasn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Tempted and tested in every way. He knows the devil will test you. Yes, there'll be trying and difficult times ahead, but it's limited. And I'm praying for you, he says, Jesus. Even when you're not praying for yourself. Even when your friends forget to pray for you. And remember this, Jesus prays for you in a perfect way, doesn't he? Because he knows you and he knows your struggle. Don't be afraid. Trust him. Faith banishes fear. And secondly, says Jesus in verse 10, be, be faithful. Look at the words. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. You know, being faithful, what does that mean? It means holding on, holding on to the faithfulness of God. 
It's not being some sort of super Christian. It's not being a stoic to grin and bear it. It's holding on to Jesus because he is faithful. It's continuing to bear witness to Christ. It's not a getting angry at God when you're suffering. It means fighting with that unbelief that we have in our hearts that questions the goodness of God and says, God is not for me, he's against me. Faithfulness is bearing witness to the goodness of God in the midst of suffering, even to the point here in Smyrna of death. In 1907, there was a revival in North Korea. You can read about it in the book called The Korean Pentecost and the Sufferings Which Followed. It's a gruesome account of the suffering of Christians at the hands first of the Japanese and then of the, the communists. And this is what the Christians said to their persecutors. I find this extraordinary and remarkable. Uh, They said, we are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us into Christ. That's faithfulness, isn't it? That's faith. They didn't escape from the sword, did they? In the school shooting in the late 90s in Colorado in the US, you you probably remember this, Cassie Burnell was reading her Bible in the school library when confronted by the gunman who was looking for Christians and he asked her, do you believe in God? And she simply said, yes. And he shot her. That's faithfulness, isn't it? Bearing witness to God. She didn't escape the sword, did she? It's trusting God, whatever happens, whether you live or die, whether he intervenes or not. Remember the Old Testament man, Job? In a series of terrible calamities, he lost everything, his family, his wealth, even his health. Remember what he said of the Lord? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Praise be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Jesus, the Lord Jesus knows our struggles and he calls us to stand firm, to persevere. Don't be afraid, be faithful. And then thirdly, the letter to Smyrna reminds us that the Lord Jesus rules time and eternity. See, there are some wonderful promises made to these Christians here, aren't there? Given to the suffering Christians, they're facing possible death. And Jesus says, I will give you life, the crown of life. Verse 11, you will not be hurt by the second death. How can he make these wonderful promises? How can he guarantee them? Well, John reminds us here that Jesus is eternal. He shares the eternal being with God. Look at verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Again, how do you see Jesus? Is your view of him adequate? Is it realistic? He's the first and the last. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He was there before you were born. He'll be there after you die. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Do you think that he can do what he's promised? He's almighty God and lives forever. See, when fear grips us and our very lives are threatened, nothing will still our hearts like faith in this Jesus. Do you believe that? Not the Jesus of our imagination. Not the Jesus who is meek and mild. Not the Jesus, the guru, the teacher, or the stained glass window Jesus. But the real Jesus, our eternal, all-powerful, glorious Lord Jesus. And not only is Jesus eternal, 
He's also conquered death for us. Look at verse 8 again. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Then back to chapter 1, verse 17, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's so so wonderfully comforting, isn't it? The Lord Jesus rules over death and all that lies beyond it. He's the Lord of it all before we are born. He'll be the Lord of it all when we're in heaven and long forgotten in this world. He will be the Lord of it all down the generations. And we live and die, but Jesus died and came to life again. Death could not hold him. Death is a defeated enemy. Death, Jesus conquered it through his resurrection. The keys of death are in his hands. He has all authority over death. See, Christians don't die by accident. We We don't die by accident. We don't die by the will of men or by the power of nature. We are called home into God's presence when the Lord Jesus chooses. He numbers our days. He preserves our lives. And he is the one, <coughs> excuse, me, <coughs> excuse me, who calls us home. You know, we're immortal until the day that Jesus calls us. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that a comfort? It's natural to fear death, isn't it? But Jesus means to set us free from that fear. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. We do not have to fear death. Trust Jesus, trust his promise. Verse 10, be faithful to the point of death and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Look at verse 11, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Nothing can take away our eternal life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. There is no second death for those who are in Christ. There is a second death and an eternal separation from God for those who reject Christ and his cross and remain unforgiven and unreconciled to God. Like the Jews in Smyrna who persecuted the Christians. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you been born again by his spirit? Are you living by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, seeking to be faithful to him despite opposition and persecution? If so, you don't need to fear the second death. It can't hurt you. The end is only the beginning of eternal life and light and love. Why? How? Well, simply because Jesus rules time and eternity. Well, let me finish. How did the Christians in Smyrna go? Well, we don't know much of that history, but we do know the story of one martyr in Smyrna, and that his name was Polycarp. He was born in 69 AD, and he was actually a disciple of the Apostle John who wrote this letter, uh, this book of Revelation. And he lived uh, to be 86 years old, quite an old man, and for the second half of his life, he became actually the Bishop of Smyrna and served there. For the rest of his life and he was a godly leader of the early church and he died as a martyr in 155 AD in the Roman arena of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna sent out a letter to the other churches after he died to quote, tell the story of those who had suffered martyrdom, especially the blessed Polycarp who by his martyrdom brought the persecution to an end. That was the end of the 10 days. 
The Roman festivals at the time were often occasions for severe harassment of Christians. Christians in Smyrna were regularly arrested and brought before the Roman proconsul if they refused to declare that Caesar was Lord and offer the required sacrifices, they were dragged into the arena, whipped, burned alive, tortured on the rack, torn by wild beasts. We, we can't imagine that sort of brutality. During one festival, after a few weeks, days of this, the crowd grew restless and they called for the bishop. Polycarp was arrested, brought to the arena in front of the cheering crowd, and the proconsul tried to get him to recant. He had a lot of respect for the bishop. Old man, recant, or you'll be burned in the fire. Polycarp replied, the fire you speak of lasts but an hour and is soon quenched. But what do you know of the fire of judgment? So come, why delay? Do what you will. The proconsul tried again, you're an old man. Swear and I will release you. Revile Christ. And Polycarp said, I've served him for 86 years and he never did me wrong. Shall I deny him who's been so faithful to me? He was bound and burned alive. What gave the bishop and his people such courage? What will give us courage in the face of the growing opposition and hostility in our culture? Three truths we've been reminded of today. Our risen, ascended, glorious Lord Jesus knows us and all our struggles our risen, ascended, glorious Jesus calls us to stand firm in the face of opposition. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. And our risen, ascended, glorious Lord Jesus rules time and eternity and will give the crown of life to all who persevere. What a blessing it is to be a member of a church, of this church, of his church, and have him as our saviour and king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know we live in a time and in a world that doesn't acknowledge you, but arrogantly rejects your rule. <clears throat> you know that opposition to your word and its values <clears throat> is actually growing in our country here. And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and give us a clear view of Jesus, our Saviour and Lord, so that we would not fear opposition, but stand firm when trouble comes. And Lord, for those times that we have denied you, by our actions, words or silence, forgive us. Thank you for each other. Help us to have such joy and unity in Christ that we would always love and encourage each other to trust you for the future, no matter what we might face. And Lord, we pray especially for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. Lord, please protect them. Help them to stand firm, knowing that you rule over all and hold out that great promise of life eternal to them. And we pray it all in, in the name of our blessed Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.